us in. We thank you for your compassion and kindness towards us. We pray that you would draw us closer to you, that we would do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. There are undeniably parts of scripture that are a bit uncomfortable. And when we read them, they don't always fit our preconceived notion of what a kind and loving God should be like. Instead, we read them and we think, I'd be okay if I never read that part of scripture again. And we find when we get to it, perhaps there's a temptation to just skim over it the second time. But if we wish to grow in knowing God, if we want to grow in intimacy with him, we cannot dismiss the parts that make us uncomfortable. We cannot simply skim over those sections that don't meet our preconceived notions of who God should be. The Christian musician Rich Mullins wrote a song in the 90s, which was a recent recitation of one of the creeds, and in it had had a few little meditations. And the part that always hit me was partway through the song, he sings, I did not make it. That is, he did not make up the faith, but it is making me. As Christians, we are called not to create a novel or more palatable faith, but rather to let the ancient Catholic faith, revealed in scriptures and then expounded upon by the creeds, to form who we are. We are called to let that faith mold our hearts our souls, and our minds, that we would be transformed, that we would live as Christians that glorify our Heavenly Father. Our goal, therefore, as Christians, is not to dismiss the parts of Scripture that make us human. It is not to pretend that they do not exist, but earnestly ask that question, how do these parts form our view of how do they show us his love, his justice, his mercy? So if we find ourselves getting uncomfortable with certain passages, such as the gospel reading this morning, it is because they shatter our concept of a warm and fuzzy God that is ambivalent to our appetites. It shatters our concept of God who is like a doddering old man who loves everyone and just lets the things fly that he may not actually like. But instead, this passage expands our understanding of God's love for us. It expands our understanding how God forms his people and calls us to holiness. Now, for those of you who know me reasonably well, know that I'm a pretty mellow person. I don't, generally speaking, get visibly angry. I don't tend to yell. And in fact, I rather dislike yelling. These children know that I enjoy biking, and they've reached the point where they also are starting to enjoy biking. One day, these friends needed to, someone to hang out with their children for a couple of hours while they ran errands, and asked if I would be willing to have a bike party with them, which 
which I agreed to. We spent some time riding around their relatively quiet after their quiet neighborhood. But it was also that afternoon that I learned trying to corral four children who are at various levels of biking proficiency is roughly like trying to herd gnats. At one point, a car was coming, and I also discovered that children are not always as situationally aware as we might like them to be. As the car got closer, I told them to get out of the road once, and then a second time, and then finally I yelled, get out of the road, and then they did. Later, I was reflecting to my friend that I was surprised how easy it was to yell at his children. And he laughed. In my yelling at them, I was not upset. I simply had a deep desire to protect them from oncoming dangers. Perhaps you know this feeling that I will describe. But when I get angry, I feel that tightness in my chest, and I get snippy at whoever I am frustrated with. But when my friend's kids were in the road and not paying as much attention as I wanted them to, there was no anger, there was no tightness in my chest, simply a desire to protect those whom I love. As we read this lesson from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, do we read it as Christ being seething at the Pharisees? Do we see the second person of the Trinity losing control of his emotions as we do when we become angry? Do we see a man who loves his people deeply, who desires that his people would be saved from coming judgment and would trust their God, who is leaving a final warning for them? Our gospel lesson this morning reveals to us a God who loves us deeply. I know not everyone I know that there are some people who are far better at confrontation than I am. And there are others who wrestle with being level-headed when things don't go turn out how they would like them to. I suspect that we all wrestle with our emotions on this front. But I want you to think about a question. When you verbalize your frustration, are you more likely to verbalize it if you care about the person or thing involved, or if you don't care about it? Are you more likely to express your pain, anger, or frustration with your best friend, your spouse, or your children? Or are you more likely to express it with a stranger whom you hardly know? For a vast majority of us, we might grumble at a driver who does something foolish, but we are far, far more likely to be willing to confront those whom we care about. We are apt to say what we really think with those whom we love. Christ confronts the Pharisees over their sin, not because he's seemingly mad at them, not because he just wants to scream at them, but because he cares deeply for them. Because it is his last chance to drive them to repentance. It is, last op it is his last opportunity before being taken to the cross to call them back to their drive them to true internal personal holiness. Think for a moment about the character of Christ revealed in the gospel. He healed the deathly. He had been incredibly merciful to sinners, 
even sinners caught in the act. He did not drive away children, but invited them to himself. We see Jesus as profoundly tender to the repentant sinner and to the innocent. And here we are asked to make a conclusion. Does God's love only extend to sinners, to some sinners, or to all sinners? We love those stories of conversion, the stories of the reprobate who delighted deeply in tragic, the tragic passions of life. But what about the sinner who knew better? What about the older brother and the prodigal son? Does God's mercy extend to him as well? Scripture shows us that God's love is extended to all sinners, the acceptable ones and the unacceptable ones. God's love extends to the prostitute, the grizzled fisherman, and the proud and refined Pharisee who had no love in his heart. Think for a moment about Nicodemus. We met him earlier this year as he came to Christ in the middle of the night. He appears three times in the Gospel according to St. John. First, we learn that he's a ruler of the Pharisee party. He undoubtedly, at least outwardly, was like all the other Pharisees. Judgmental, holier than thou, a white washed After the first encounter, he seems to leave perplexed but unconverted. After his second, the second encounter with sympathetic to his mission. Finally, in the third encounter, when Jesus, when most of Jesus' closest disciples had scattered and abandoned him, as their Lord was hung dying on the cross, Nicodemus was there to take the body. Nicodemus was there to care for the body and lay it in the tomb. It seems then, by the third Yes, there is hope, even for the self-righteous and proud man. There is hope for every sinner. God's love extends to him in Christ. But the call of that love is to accept it, to be transformed by it. We know we, when we come to know Christ, we are called to repentance, called to a complete turning away of our sins, from our sins, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He starts the process of changing our hearts. But our gospel reading doesn't just reveal the love of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. It also reveals God's judgment and justice. Let us first attend to this false notion that we often hear, that a loving God cannot also be the God who stands in judgment at the end Time and again throughout scripture, we see that God is concerned with the plight of those who are denied justice. In fact, a loving God must also be a just God. A loving God must care for the plight of the poor and the oppressed and the wounded and the lost. It is perhaps the greatest promise of scripture that on the last day, not only that those who are in Christ not only that those who are in Christ will be recreated, restored, and brought into the new creation, 
Those who saw injustice go unintended, that will justice rolls on. Sin leads to death and leads to oppression. It leads to a world that is out of alignment. But when things are remade, God will make straight all that we have made crooked. If you want to see more of this, take some time to read the prophets. There are two complaints that are laid against Israel by the prophets. First was their failure to perform righteousness. That is worship that stemmed from the heart and glorified God. Worship that transformed hearts and minds and instilled in them a deep love for God and neighbors. Because of that failure of right worship, they also failed to do justice. Instead of caring for the least among them, they tolerated stealing of land and the oppression of those who most needed the leaders to get up and defend them. In the Old Testament, we see a God who is just. But we see the same God in the New Testament. I remember long before I was a Christian, there was a sitcom that I rather enjoyed. One time, the husband in it decided to go on a spiritual journey to find truth. And the wife, who was sort of this new agey guru, said to him something along these lines. Well, I'll save you some time with the Bible. Old Testament is the angry God. New Testament is the loving God. For whatever reason, this stuck with me for a long time. It was a strange false dichotomy. And last year we saw this as we explored the Old Testament, meeting Jesus in it and seeing, yes, that in fact God's justice is revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. But so is his mercy and his love for his people. We should not be surprised when Christ pronounces judgment against the Pharisees. We should expect consistency between both Testaments and see a God which is the same under the Abrahamic covenant as well as under the covenant which is sealed in Christ. It does not, therefore, surprise us when Jesus levels hate charges against the scribes and the Pharisees. He says to them that they prevent the propagation of the gospel by shutting up the kingdom of heaven, by turning away from him. Their covetous and self-aggrandizing. They push for partisanship, trying to get people to join their party or their sect. They prioritize certain oaths, types of oaths. They overrate the value of alms to their own profit. They exalt the minor things in religion while neglecting the important things. They seek outward purity over inward and they were completely unaware of their own As we read this list, do you feel a sense of conviction? Over the last six months or so, I've been growing in my own conviction that I first must be concerned with that which is going on in my own heart. It is much easier to say, ah, look at what that other party is these other people are doing or what that other person is doing. Thank God I am not like him or her. It is much easier to be the Pharisee in the temple, informing God of how amazing you are than to be the tax 
bewailing your own sin before a mighty and merciful God. The first thing we are called to do when we experience these sinless is not to sneer at the Pharisees or the ancient church whom St. Paul wrote to or Israel, but to examine our own hearts. Are our priorities out of alignment with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we puff ourselves up unaware of our own sin? Do we think that we are the best of things? Do, does our faith reveal the plight of the widow or does it put pressure on him? neglecting the matters of the heart? Are we letting Christ transform our hearts? Is he resurrecting the dry bones within us? Are we more concerned with our outward appearance? My friends, these questions can be hard. They can be painful, but let us attend to the good news that is revealed to us when we recognize them. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he made a statement that I heard but it hit me. The law is crushing, but the gospel sets us free. The law crushes us, but the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from that. When we look in the mirror of the law, we see our failures, we see the mire that covers us, we see our desperate need for a redeemer. But we gaze, when we gaze upon Christ, The law, the list of sins that we run into throughout Scripture, the charges brought against those, the charges that are brought against us can crush us. But Christ comes to us in our mire of sin, takes our hand, and walks us out of it. Our call is not to stay in that place of sloth, self righteousness, self centeredness to stay in the place of misconstrued priorities, but it is to let Christ grab hold of us and walk with us out of that place. The call is that by the Holy Spirit we would experience sanctification. The old self would be put to death, while the new self would come alive. The call is to be like Nicodemus, who was once ashamed to meet Jesus and so came to him at night one of the few standing by him on the cross, ready to receive our Savior and Lord's body. Our call is to be changed men and women, unashamed of Christ, unashamed of what he's doing. And this brings us to the third thing our gospel lesson reveals to us. It is a call to true, internal, personal holiness. It is a call to know Jesus. What does it mean to know someone? It is not simply to know about them. Our church is small enough that I can tell you things about almost all of you. I know many of your hobbies, your simple delights. I know many of your past or present vocations. And I suspect that you can say the same of me and the people sitting near you in the pews. I know about you. You know about your neighbor, but do you know them? Some of you I know quite well. I know what makes you happy and sad. 
But for those of you who are married, your spouses know this even better. I know, for example, many of my friends quite well and share with them the things of my heart, and they share the same with me. But their wives, who live with them, still know them better. Knowing someone is more than knowing about them. It is more than a collection of facts. Knowing someone is knowing what they delight in, knowing what makes them happy, what makes them sad. having a genuine relationship with them. And this is what God invites us into, to know him, in, and in knowing him, to be converted, to have our hearts and minds changed. Knowing God is more than having simply a collection of facts about him, but having a relationship with him that reveals his hearts to us, A verse that has been of great encouragement to me recently and has driven me back to the heart of God again and again comes from the prophet Micah. The prophet asks, what does God want of us? Does he want a show of sacrifice? Does he want religious people who are outwardly obedient but inwardly dead? Not at all. Micah tells all of us, God has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What is good? Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God. My friends, this is the key to personal holiness. This is the key that the Pharisees missed. to love goodness, to live lives that are transformed by the Holy Spirit. So while the world clamors around us, while the world puffs itself up, we walk humbly with our God. And the goodness we are called to do is this. Do justice. That is care for the least amongst us. Live lives that are consistent, that our attitude is the same towards the beggar on the street corner as the richest person that we have ever met. Live lives that are transformed by grace. Recognize, as Jan John Bradford says, when seeing one in a poor state, save for the grace of God, there go I. We're called to live lives that extend grace to the sinner, that are also called to call for repentance, that cry out for justice for the weakest, Christians have long fought for the least amongst us. One example of this is something that our church works on with a foreign mission agency. They strive to give Dalit children in India an education and in doing so, a leg up out of their sad place. This organization reaches out to families, especially of young girls who would otherwise go into cultic prostitution in the local Hindu temples and gives them an education, each October, we have an in-gathering of funds for these schools in hopes that we can sponsor as many children as possible. I mention this not to give ourselves a pat on the back, but to plant a seed. For perhaps you are feeling convicted that you need 
a simple way to start. This is but one example of doing justice in our calling to live lives that care deeply for the least among us. And the goodness that we are called to is this, to love kindness. There's a difference between niceness and kindness. Niceness is simply having pleasantries. It is smiling. It is asking how someone's day is going. Kindness is deeper. It is listening to someone share their terrible day and genuinely caring for them. It is being willing to confront someone over an issue that has arose, not to crush their precious soul, but out of love to grow closer to one another, to make our relationships better. Kindness is caring deeply for those around you. Kindness is saying woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Kindness is giving one last warning. Kindness is bearing with someone in their sin, but not being afraid to call it what it is, sin. Kindness cares not simply for the hurting, Silas cares not simply for not hurting someone, but tenderly and genuinely loving the other and helping him or her grow with you. And the goodness we are called to is this, to walk humbly with God. This is twofold. We are called to walk with God, and we are called to do it humbly. Although I do not think that you can walk arrogantly. So we must humble ourselves. We must recognize that God calls us not to being proud, but to see our total dependency upon him. We see that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot justify ourselves, that we cannot sanctify ourselves. We see that we must come before God with total humility. And it is in that humility that we can walk with God. And this is the call. This call to humility is important. Think for a moment of the greatest stories of Israel. When they went out to war humbly with their God, they were victorious. But when they went out in pride, depending on God's gift, thinking, we are God's people, we needn't concern God with this, they were humiliated. They were destroyed. We are reminded that it is humili in humility that God is glorified. And God uses the humble to do great things. Humble yourself before the Lord and walk faithfully with him day in and day out. The Lord will use you to bless the nations, to bless your neighbors, to bless your spouse, and to bless your friends. Walk humbly. God, and God will be glorified in ways that you cannot imagine. My friends, this morning Jesus condemns the scribes and the Pharisees. In that we see his heart, we see his love for his people, and we see his coming justice. We are also reminded of our simple call to personal holiness, to do justice, to love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And so this morning, I invite you to do the just thing, to love kindness, and to seek the humble and good life 
of walking with God our Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.